Section 6 of Louis Pasteur by Albert Keim and Louis Lumet, translated by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. For the National Wealth, Part 1. The campaign which Pasteur was conducting against spontaneous generation did not absorb his entire activity. He pursued his studies of fermentation, striving to penetrate the secrets of the infinitely small, the yeasts, the vibrions, the infusoria, that whole disquieting world, the universal and formidable activity of which was not even yet suspected. Perhaps he already discerned, although only vaguely, their presence in human diseases, and this was the object of his researches and profound meditations. Pasteur used to arrive at his laboratory, walking slowly, sunk in thought, and with his forehead lined with care. He gave orders to his assistants, pointing out the experiments which he wished to have made, but never revealing the idea behind them. Succeeding Roland, he had Duclos, who was still young and who was destined to become a great scientist. Duclos admired the achievements of his master, and with his keen and lucid mind followed his luminous trail, while he often added to his duties as assistant the humbler ones of a laboratory attendant, wiping the apparatus, the retorts and flasks, a devoted servant in the temple of science. A rather sorry temple, by the way, for the laboratory was extremely inconvenient, with its five scanty rooms and a stove installed behind the staircase, where Pasteur could not even enter except on his knees. Duclos compared it to a rabbit cage, and yet it was from here, he said, that the movement started which revolutionized science. Already at that epoch a large faction of the younger generation of scientists had come under the daily increasing influence of Pasteur. The normal school chemists of 1860, wrote Mrs. Duclos in her Vie d'Emile Duclos, believed in Pasteur as the Romantics of 1830 believed in Victor Hugo. They saw before them virgin lands and unimagined sources. Thanks to the genius, the faith, and the religious spirit that the master infused into his work, he inspired these younger men with his own enthusiasm and they believed themselves born to revolutionize the ideas which had served as dogmas for their predecessors, and such a belief is strangely intoxicating to young brains. Among the assistants and students who gathered around Monsieur Pasteur in the little laboratory in the Rue d'Homme, there was a continual interchange of conceptions and of projects, very different ones, from those that are born and die daily apropos of literature or philosophy, for these discussions dealt with the only form of truth that is capable of being verified, namely science. But while Pasteur kept secret the object he had in view during the course of his experiments, that were often long, difficult, and countless times recommenced, when he had once obtained his results, he boldly and vigorously proclaimed them. He had a scorn of bad faith, routine, and prejudice, and everyone knows the famous apostrophe which he addressed to his adversaries 
who were disputing his discoveries in relation to the crystals of tartrates at a meeting of the Société Philomatique on the 8th of December, 1862. If you have ever known anything of the subject, what have you done with your knowledge? And if you have not known, why do you interfere? He was a rough antagonist, but he fought only for the triumph of truth, putting all personal considerations aside. In the course of his studies of fermentations, Pasteur was led to study the phenomenon through which wine was transformed into vinegar. The celebrated chemist Liebig had established a theory which did not altogether agree with his own observations, and he proceeded victoriously to advance his own theory in opposition. The manufacturers of vinegar at Orléans pursued the following method. In two groups of stationary barrels, they poured a mixture of two-thirds ripened vinegar and one-third wine. On the surface of this mixture there was formed a thin film, of which no one knew the composition, but which was necessary in order to obtain a prompt and thorough acetification or transformation into vinegar. The manufacturers took great care of this film, for if it was dislodged, or if it sank to the bottom of the barrels, the whole operation had to be done over. What was this film, which, in order to work well, required a current of fresh air that was furnished by drilling an opening in the barrels a little above the level of the liquid? Pasteur worked for nearly a year on this problem, and he proved that acetification was caused by a microbe which lived on the surface of the liquid, obtained oxygen from the air, and transferred a part of it to the liquid below, which in this way was oxidized. He gave this microbe the name of Mycoderma aceti, or Mycoderma vinegar. This ferment is endowed with an extraordinary power of prolificness, the individual cells, twice as long as they are wide, are so minute that it requires 400 of them placed end to end and 800 placed side by side to measure a millimeter in length. That 30 million can find space in a square centimeter and 300 billion are formed in 24 hours upon a square meter of liquid. What is the weight of these 300 billions of cells? One gram, and this gram is capable of transforming 10 kilograms of alcohol into vinegar in the space of five days. It follows that a single cell consumes in the course of one day a quantity of nourishment equal to 2,000 times its own weight. From these fabulous figures one can form some conception of the activity of these infinitely small organisms and of their formidable power in the economy of universal life. Pasteur discovered that the mycoderm of wine could become ill, and that it produced either good or bad vinegar, as the case might be. Through proper cultivation, he obtained perfect cells, which, when placed in a mixture of wine and vinegar, produced an excellent and regular acetification. Up to this time, the industry of the vinegar makers of Orléans was subject to all sorts of losses due to ignorance and to chance. 
Pasteur furnished them with a method which never failed. He saved them from the daily anxiety of obtaining bad products, and he helped them to gain millions. At the same time that he was occupied with vinegars, Pasteur had been investigating even as far back as 1863 the origin of different maladies which affect wines. The Municipal Council of Arbois, priding themselves on this illustrious compatriot, offered him a laboratory where he might pursue these studies that were of interest to all the wine growers of France. Pasteur preferred to be installed in independent quarters, and Duclos, who on several occasions directed the experiments made at Arbois, has given a most picturesque description of the place. The laboratory had been established in a former café. The traditional signboard had been left above the entrance, in consequence of which it often happened to us to have customers enter and ask for food and drinks. Generally they halted at the door, surprised at the strangeness of the furnishings, and took themselves off without a word, assuredly carrying with them visions of the almanac of Nostradamus. It must be said in their defense that if the room no longer resembled the café, it resembled a laboratory quite as little. There was no gas, the heating was done with coal, the flames of which were made more active at the required moment with the help of fans. There was no water, we ourselves went like Rebecca to draw it at the public fountain, or like Nosica to wash our utensils by the river bank. Our tables were trestles, and as for our apparatus, since nearly all of it came from the local carpenter, tinsmith, or blacksmith of Arbois, it may be imagined that they did not have the canonical forms, and that, when we walked through the streets on our way to the wine cellars to get the wine for the purpose of analysis, we did not pass by without calling forth some sarcastic comments from the somewhat hostile inhabitants of the little town. Whatever this haphazard workshop may have been, Pasteur's experiments, methodically and perseveringly continued, were decisive. What was the cause of the maladies of wines? Contrary to the widely accepted opinions, Pasteur proved that oxygen was not injurious to wine, but that on the contrary it was oxygen which aged it and gave it flavor and bouquet. Wine hermetically sealed without contact with oxygen remained forever young. This prejudice having been overcome by experiments, Pasteur showed further that each malady of wine had its own special microbe, and that under the microscope it was possible to distinguish those of la tourne, of la mer, et la graisse. All of them well-known maladies of wine, but by no means the only ones. How was it possible to combat these microbes, the terrors of wine-growers and epicures, for no barrel and no bottle was surely safe. Pasteur tried at first to use antiseptics, tasteless and odorless, but without obtaining good results. It was through the application of heat that he finally solved the problem, and it was well worth the solving, since the vineyards of France produce, as a matter of fact, 50 million hectoliters of an average value of 500 million francs, and suffer enormous losses through the occurrence of diseases. Pasteur heated the wines in a closed vessel to 130 degrees Fahrenheit, 
and by thus destroying the microbes put them in a condition to be kept without danger of spoiling. But this process of heating had to contend with many prejudices. It was believed that it altered the quality of the wines, and the growers were reluctant to adopt this method of preservation. A commission was appointed to try the effect of the pasture method upon wines to be transported by sea. They put on board the Jean Bar at Brest samples of wine that had been heated and other samples that had not been heated. After ten months of ocean travel, the former samples were declared by the commission to be excellent in all respects, while the latter samples had turned sour. The experiment was repeated on board the frigate La Sibylle and gave the same results. The wine that had been heated preserved all its characteristic qualities and escaped all injury. For that matter, the protection of liquids by heating has now become general, and we pasteurize milk, beer, etc. Napoleon III became interested in Pasteur's study of wines, for it involved the question of safeguarding one of the principal sources of the wealth of France. Accordingly, during one of the sojourns of the court at Compiègne, both he and the empress, Eugenie, were initiated into the details of the experiments. It was in 1865 that Pasteur, armed with his microscope and his samples of wine, delivered a lecture on the subject before the emperor and empress and taught them to distinguish, with their eye at the lens, the microbes of the Tourne from those of the Amer. Napoleon III expressed surprise that it had not occurred to Pasteur to make a pecuniary profit out of his discoveries, which were worth tens of millions to the wine industry, and Pasteur made this fine response. In France, a scientist would think that he had demeaned himself if he did such a thing. According to his standards, they must content themselves with glory and with the satisfaction of a duty fulfilled. In Pasteur, Napoleon III liked both the man and the scientist, and many a time he invited him either to the Tuileries or to Compiègne. Arrangements were made to conduct some experiments in the apartments of the empress, and in the presence of the ladies of honor, Pasteur expounded the mysteries of the world of infinitely little things. Incidentally, he met with a singular adventure which might have banished him from the court if the affection which the empress bore him had been less genuine. For the purposes of a certain demonstration, Pasteur had needed some live frogs, which he obtained from the head gardener of the parks at Compiègne. When the experiment was ended, the absent-minded scientist left the frogs behind him, imprisoned in an insecure bag. They invaded the bedchamber of the empress, and the latter, arising during the night, set her foot upon a cold and slimy frog. She experienced a terrible fright and very nearly fainted. Afterwards, she laughed at her own fear, but although she bore no grudge against Pasteur, she could never again bear even the sight of the poor offensive frog. In 1867, Pasteur received from the jury of the Exposition Universelle a grand prize for his services in behalf of wines. But even before these researches were fully completed, he had prepared to undertake a new series of studies that were destined to enhance his fame still further. 
for fifteen years a veritable scourge had ravaged the departments of southern France. The industry of rearing silkworms, formerly so prosperous that the mulberry tree had come to be called a tree of gold, had fallen off alarmingly, with an annual loss of more than fifty million francs. The people were reduced to dire poverty, and the sorely tried landowners, helpless to combat the cause of their ruin, appealed to the government. Strange maladies were spreading among the silkworms, which died in countless numbers, and there was no remedy that seemed to help them. Dumas, commissioned to present to the Senate the petition from the affected district, having confidence in the genius of Pasteur, begged him to consent to go and study on the spot this disease of the silkworms, which was proving so fatal to a national industry that in the single district of Alais it had caused, within five years, a loss of nearly a hundred and fifty million francs. Pasteur knew nothing of the subject, but in the face of such a permanent menace, which condemned a whole section of France to the blackest misery, he consented to absent himself from his beloved laboratory in the Rue d'Olme, and to accept the commission from the Ministry of Agriculture. It was in the midst of sorrow and mourning that he was destined to carry on this new study, a long and difficult one, lasting from 1865 to 1870. For within a few years he lost his father and two of his daughters. His father, we know the profound affection that he felt for the old soldier of the empire, to whom he owed his love for work and that steadfast conscience that guided him so straightly through the path of life, his daughters, the joy and hope of his home circle. These intimate tragedies traced a few additional lines upon his austere face, but it was with the same valiant heart, the same unbiased mind, the same tenacious will, that he continued to pursue his great task on behalf of humanity. End of section 6